Hello and welcome to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick In this episode, I'll be talking to Davi O'Cronin about the songs of his grandmother, Elizabeth Cronin. Elizabeth Cronin was born in Ballyvornia in County Cork in 1879 and she was one of the most important traditional singers of the 20th century. Seamus Ennis called her the Muscary Queen of Song and Bill Meek spoke of her voice having a tranquil power, a voice which somehow embodies a whole culture. She was a very well-known singer even in her own time and from the late 1940s onwards many collectors visited Bollivornia and sought her out in particular for her huge repertoire of songs in Irish and in English as well as her font of stories in Shanachas. RTE, the Folklore Commission, the BBC, uh, people like Seamus Ennis, Brian George, Alan Lomax, Jean Ritchie, George Pico... Diane Hamilton and many more visited her home over the years and of course what that means is that a lot of her songs although probably nowhere near all of her songs have been collected and many of them were recorded for us to listen to today. The first edition of the book The Songs of Elizabeth Cronin which includes two CDs of Bess singing was published 20 years ago but has since gone out of print so happily now a new edition again edited by her grandson Davio Cronin has just been published by four Courts Press and this new edition contains new material which wasn't in the original publication. So I spoke to Davi O'Cronin about these songs and about his grandmother Elizabeth Cronin and first we started with a song. Shahi Bess Cronin agus Shul Arun. I would I were on yonder hill sit and cry my fill and every tear would turn mill as the morning swan. Shul, 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 as Shul Arun Achana Eg Elizabeth Cronin and Shin Ag Sadavi O'Cronin Garwak Le Elizabeth Cronin and Shaw Lums the Studio Ravi. That's a song that you particularly like sung by Elizabeth Cronin. Why is that? Oh gosh, you're starting with the hard questions, Eva. <laughs> straight in, Dobby, straight, straight in. in. Yeah. Uh, I, I should be a politician, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think it reflects the sort of gentleness of Bess's singing. You know, it's, people talked about the nature of her singing and uh, the recorded songs and so on. And uh, you have to take account, I suppose, of the fact that we've no recordings of her when she was very young. I often wonder what she was like, you know, when she performed at the Fesh at age 18 or 19. And then you hear her when she's 70 or 71 or two or three. And it's probably a very different voice and a very different way of singing a song. But I think Shularoon, um a, because of the gentleness of the singing, the, the, the lovely soft tone delivery and so on, and the fact, of course, that it's uh, bilingual as well, is a nice illustration of the fact that uh, Bess's repertoire represents songs both in the Irish language, which was her native language, her first language, but also songs in English. She had a huge repertoire of what are called the, the big ballads, or the child ballads, the famous ballads that were collected in the 19th century um, in England and, and Scotland initially but then collected also over in America where all these uh, songs and traditions had gone. 
we'll try and get a parse some of what you've just said there um, <laughs> during the course of this interview. I said to you earlier that this is a series, not an interview, but, yeah. but we'll do our best. Do your um, best. Yeah. She, she, she was your grandmother. Um, did you know her at all? As I a, didn't, unfortunately. No, no. Simply, I was a victim of circumstances, I suppose you could say. I was merely a year and a half when Bess died in 1956. You can do the math there now. <laughs> Um, so although I'm sure I was brought down to Bolivorn on the plantation and I'm sure I was dandled on her knee and I'm sure she sang Cook and Andy and all that kind of thing, uh, I have no recollection of the woman, unfortunately. But everything I heard about her is, is very positive. Seamus Ennis said she was a very jolly lady and all my cousins and aunts and uncles, those, those who did know her better than I do, uh, confirmed that. She seems to have been a very jolly, very happy-go-lucky woman. And certainly that's what comes across in the singing and in any mm-hmm. of the uh, excerpts of interviews. You, you've, I think you've so, a yeah. very warm mm-hmm. personality. But tell me about her own um, family background. Uh, she was born and reared initially in the sort of Fuhrys area, which would be, I suppose, well known to um, traditional music lovers as, as the Schlievlochre area, I suppose, the Corkerry border. Um, she was the daughter of a, a teacher, a master, Sean Marster O'Hirlaher, that's where the name comes from. Um, but when she was young, she was sent out to um, a childless uncle and aunt of hers uh, down in Raw, down in Renanaree, that part of the world, heading towards Kilnamartha, I suppose. And um, because it was the custom, in fact, it's the custom still to the present day, I have a neighbour who was in the same circumstances where, where elderly couples had no children. Uh, relatives were sent in to mind them, so to speak, and to help out with the farm and all that kind of thing. So that's that's where Bess went. And in fact, Bess, uh, in later years, when she was being interviewed, you talked about her interviewing there and the uh, the things she said to the collectors, but she remarked, I think, on, on one occasion that part of her repertoire came from the fact that she had, had moved around. She had been initially, obviously, with her parents, then moved to the aunt and uncle down in, in Raw, and then moved finally, when she married, moved into the plantation in Balivourna. So she had access to different singing traditions, I suppose, and different repertoires down the years. Her marriage then, tell me about her her, her husband and then growing her life <laughs> that, on the plantation. That's the hardest question of all, because it has defeated me to get anybody to tell me about the father, the husband, so to speak, uh, Jack, Sean Cronin. Um, and he's referred to by Sean O'Cronin, that's to say my, my uncle, the man who was the folklore collector between uh, 1939 and 65. He was the full-time collector of folklore for the Folklore Commission. And in the various bits and pieces of, of folklore that he collected at home in the old place, uh, he refers constantly to the Shana Vogel, who must be, I think, the father, you know, but that, that's as much as is said about him, generally speaking. The talk, as far as I'm concerned, and when I was growing up, the talk was entirely and solely and, and uh, exclusively about Bess. It wasn't about the father, really. Mm. He was seldom mentioned. I don't know why. I don't know whether he was interested in the music or in the folklore generally or, or what the story was, but uh, the concentration was exclusively on Bess. And did he die young then? Did he? He did, did I think, in her? 1941. I'm not sure what age he was now, whether he was young or not, but he had died by 1941, if my memory serves me right. So Bess was a widow from that point on until 1956. Yeah. <laughs> Cock 
And just as an aside, the plantation, uh, the, the place she lived, what, what yeah. is it called, the plantation? <laughs> yeah, another common question. It's a good question. It's not festooned with trees and there aren't cotton-picking people out there in the fields or anything like that. Uh, interestingly enough, in the letters that Bess Cronin wrote to my father, you know, my father went when he was very young off to teacher training in Dublin, so he wasn't always back home. Um, but any time my uh, granny wrote to him, it was from the old plantation, as she called it. Uh, so I think that has reference to the fact that during the 1940s, the family built a new house. It's a beautiful house and it's still there. Uh, my cousins are living in it now and it's a credit to them, I have to say. They built their own two-story house and it's a fine edifice. But the old house was obviously an old cottage of the kind that you see, you know, in photographs of 1940s Ireland or 1930s Ireland and so on. So I suspect that while the, 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 the new house was being constructed, Bess was still living in the old house, and that's the old plantation. But why it was a plantation, I actually don't know, and it has failed me to find anybody else who can explain it. Mm. There may have been a lot of trees there at one stage, but I, I really don't know. OK, well, she was born in 1879. She died in 1956, but she was born into a very, very interesting and rich cultural area. And you, you devote uh, a section in this uh, book, The Songs of Elizabeth Cronin, to that and to some of the characters who were living there at that time. But just briefly, if you can, give me a sense of the sort of cultural uh, richness that was going on around her when she was growing up. Well, she herself, of course, would have come from a, a famous uh, literary family, I suppose we would call it now, a family of poets. Uh, she was a neat earlaha, Sean Marster O'Hearlaha was one of the O'Hearlahas who uh, for several generations, in fact, I suppose you could say several hundred years, they were the, the uh, poets in charge of the Dovskyl, the famous uh, school of poetry in uh, Moosgree. So they would have been highly regarded as poets and, and language guardians, so to speak, and the keepers of the lore in that area. That whole area of Muskery heading towards uh, the Cork Kerry border, as I said previously. And she herself obviously imbued that kind of culture in terms of poetry and song and also in terms of the vocabulary. I said earlier that my father tended to talk more about Bess in terms of her language, her vocabulary, her richness of, of lore and that kind of thing, more so even than uh, about her songs. And that was borne out by the fact that in the 1940s, uh, the late um, Professor Brian O'Keeve, uh, father of young Dev, I suppose people would know him, um, who was a, pr a professor in the Institute of Advanced Studies for many years and a fine, a very, very fine scholar of Irish in all its phases himself, he actually came down when he was working on, on the dialect study of Ballyvorna Irish, Muscari Irish, as part of the series that the Institute produced in the 1940s. He came down and he talked specifically to Bess Cronin because of the richness of her Irish, because she had words that nobody else had, because she had vocabulary that you wouldn't find in Deneen's dictionary, say. Um, very, very highly thought of, um, which gives the lie, I think, to, to the idea that's out there very often that folklore and, and shanachas and all that kind of stuff was collected exclusively from uh, male informants. It's not the case. Mm. Bess was a very highly prized informant. She would have ranked up there with her near contemporary, I suppose you could say, Peg Sayers, mm. for the same reason, you know, the richness of the language and the storytelling and so on. And in fact, I was rash enough when this book appeared, first of all, over 20 years ago, I was rash enough to promise a follow-up volume, a second volume. I noticed that. Be careful of what you wish for or something. But the idea was to produce a second volume of all the storytelling and the shenachas and... and uh, 
the word lists and all that kind of stuff that my father and my uncle Sean, the collector, and various other people wrote down from Bess Cronin. In fact, if I ever get around to doing it, and I hope I will, it'll be a bigger volume than the song collection because she was really an, an extraordinary repository of that kind of material. <laughs> Tell me, Dr. Lynch, or Dr. Lynch, tell me about him, and especially, I was fascinated by that story of the local parliament. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, well, Donald Lynch was one of the great figures of the, the what we call, I suppose, the language revival or the cultural revival. He was a Balivorna man himself, but he left um, uh, to study medicine initially. Uh, he eventually ended up, um, I think he fought in the, the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-71. And I think he also fought for the, uh, the Vatican uh, in the time of Garibaldi, when there was uh, great activity going on in Italy. Um, a multicultured, uh, multilingual individual with tremendous, uh, what we would call, entrepreneurial ability. He did come back eventually to Balivurna, uh, never forgot his home place, but when he came back, he did all kinds of wonderful things like setting up a co-op, uh, encouraging the language, encouraging the best speakers of the language, and when the Arachtus began in 1893 and so on, he was the one who initially uh, persuaded the famous Four Masters, the famous Shanachah uh, in Balivurna, to go up and enter the competitions for storytelling and singing and, and uh, poetry and all that kind of thing. But he also was uh, very much involved in, in opening up Balivorna, if you like, and, and the Muscogee area to the outside world. I suppose we, we had this impression that this community was very closed in, but in fact it wasn't. And you, you mentioned the uh, the parliament. Uh, Dr. Olencia was very much to the fore in um, bringing together the locals after mass on a Sunday and, and reading through the... The, uh, the British and the Continental newspapers with them and, and talking about the great events of the world outside Balivorna. So it, it was a very, uh, a very educational uh, function as well as everything else. But he was a tremendous, um, tremendous personality and hugely regarded by the locals. And indeed, I have to say, hugely regarded by the Irish language community all over the country. And, and when he died, I think it was in 1913 or something like that, uh, Conan the Gaelga and the language movement um, were, were very... Um, very forthcoming in their praise of all that he had done for the language generally and not just for Balivurna. Okay, well, this this collection uh, was first published 20 years ago and it was based on work done by your father. Um, did you work on that with him before he died or was that just something you came to, was it work that you came to after his death? I'm afraid it's work I came to after his passing away because he wouldn't let me within an, an ass's roar of the <laughs> stuff while he was still alive. He was very much... Uh, very possessive, if you like, of, of that mm. kind of material. Um, I, mean, I had, obviously, a sort of introduction to the material generally because he had, over the course of the years in the 1970s and the early 80s, he himself had published, I think it's four books of uh, Shanachas that had been collected by his brother Sean in his capacity as the full-time collector that I mentioned previously. So 
insofar as I, I was aware of this kind of material and I had access to some of the unpublished material over the years, it was really only after my father passed away, Benach Deir, in 1990, that I was forced to sort of go back and look at the stuff and see what could be done with it. Um, and I think uh, I was lucky in a sense because I wasn't aware, and I, I don't think my father was aware, I certainly never heard him speak of the fact that uh, Jean Ritchie and George Pico had come over in 1951 and recorded uh, from Bess Cronin. She had recorded others as well, but Bess Cronin was her primary source because Seamus Ennis had made a beeline for, for Balavurna when they came over. And uh, I happened to be down with a cousin of mine, uh, now sadly deceased, Mamie Lynch, down in Raw, uh, because we took Jean and George. Jean and George came over in 1991. Um, they came over, we brought them over to go back and revisit the old haunts that they had visited when they were collecting in the 50s. And uh, we happened to be in uh, a house in Raw that, that my uh, cousin lived in, um, now sadly gone. And in the course of the conversation, we were having a great time and a great chat and a great reminiscence and so on. And Mamie disappeared into the back room and came out again with a, a small brown envelope. Uh, life is full of brown envelopes. Generally speaking, they're not a good thing. <laughs> but in this case, the, the brown envelope that uh, Mamie came out with had hundreds and hundreds of small little sort of one-inch squared photographs of, of Bess and her sisters and various other people like that. And I wondered what this was. And Mamie wasn't really able to explain to me what they were because um, she thought they were little box camera photos uh, of the kind that we all grew up with in the 40s and 50s and later, those of us who had uh, box cameras in the family. But then uh, she told me who had done them and I wrote off. I happened to write off to Jean and George, told them what my project was, that I was hoping to put together a collection of Bess's songs. And then, lo and behold, this huge, big Kodak box arrived back with full prints, full, you know, one-foot square prints of, of what in the originals that I had seen had been one-inch square photographs. Mm. And what had happened was that after Jean and George had gone back to America, after they'd gone back to Port Washington in New York there, they had sent uh, Mamie and, and the family uh, contact prints, I suppose A4 size uh, sheets of, of multiple photographs that looked like tiny little um, scenes from a, a cine camera almost. Mm. But these were intended for people to make a choice. They're still used by professional photographers today in the newspapers, for example, and they make a choice of whichever photo they want. But poor Mamie didn't understand that she was being offered any, any of these photographs that she wanted in full size. So she simply cut up the contact prints <laughs> and kept them as the record of the, the famous visitation. And then I only discovered after the Kodak, Spock, uh, the Kodak box arrived that uh, these were magnificent black and white prints that George had taken. George was a professional photographer, and although Jean had come on a Fulbright to collect the songs that related to her own tradition and her own background growing up in Kentucky and so on, George, they were recently married, in fact, they were married just before they came to Ireland, and George paid his way over, not by virtue of the Fulbright funding, but by virtue of the fact that every so often he sent back uh, photo articles to various magazines in the United States, and the the articles included these various photos that he was taking. So that's how he paid his way, as it were. But mm -hmm. the, the fortunate thing from our point of view is that we have these wonderful photographs that you know from the book yeah. of Bess Cronin and her sisters and the whole ambience, the whole background, if you like. It, it presents an Ireland that's literally long gone. I mean, if you remember, for example, the fact that when those photos were taken, there was no electricity in Balivurna. There was no electricity in Raw or Kilnamatsa and those places. Um, so the electricity that was required to power both the recordings and the photographs, that had to be fed in from the car or the truck that Jean and George had brought with them from Dublin. Mm. So it, it's a different world completely and yet the photographs are still there, thankfully, and they, they, they preserve that fantastic image of Ireland in the 50s as it was in Bess's time. 
You know, they're fantastic photographs. And, and the visit of Jean Ritchie and George Picot was also important, wasn't it? Because they brought with them, uh, you know, state-of-the-art recording equipment, which made That's their right. recordings very That's special. That's right. Hugely important, yeah. I mean, initially it was important that Jean came because Jean represented the sort of American branch of the same tradition that had produced uh, Bess and fellow singers over here. And because she had the interest and the knowledge to go with it and therefore could, you know, converse with Bess and she got on like a house on fire with Bess, it's quite clear which meant, of course, that Bess was perfectly happy to give her her songs. It's not always the case, as you know, in the case of collectors, there's, there's not always that same degree of rapport or understanding. But in this case, because they were so, uh, they were well got together. Uh, and then the second thing was that, as you mentioned yourself, because they were American collectors, because they were bringing the state-of-the-art technology that the Americans could draw on at the time, the reel-to-reel, as it was previous to that, um, recorders from the Folklore Commission, even the BBC, had had to cut recordings onto acetate discs, the, the sort of predecessors of what you and I remember as the LP discs. And then even before that, previous collectors had um, wax cylinders and things like that that are un- unheard of nowadays. So the technology was so much more advanced in the States. Uh, Jean and George had uh, what is called a MagnaCord recorder, which was a reel-to-reel, magnetic reel recorder. So it meant that when Jean and George were recording Bess and the various other uh, performers that they were interested in, uh, they had this, it's not digital now, but it might as well have been digital for for all we know. It, it was really first class uh, quality, which meant that when it came to the point of producing the book and the double CDs that accompanied the book, although the great Harry Bradshaw had to do a certain amount of remastering on the older recordings made by either RTE or the Folklore or the BBC or whatever, there was no necessity of any remastering on these machines, on these recordings, because I remember, I well remember it still in my head when I went to visit Jean and George and they were very kind to me when I began the project because uh, I was invited over there. But I remember when they brought me into the house, they brought me down to the basement and George rigged up the original magna cord. You know, the original recording is there, the original machinery is there and he, he put up the two reels and he played them and as he played them he was copying onto newfangled um, cassettes for me. But just listening to them on, on the cassettes or on the, the, uh, the magnetic tape was just a magical experience because it was like sitting in the room with Bess. It, you know, they were so wonderful, so fantastic in terms of their quality. And as I say, that quality is still to be seen in the two CDs that accompany the book. We should have a listen to one of those <laughs> recordings now. Is mm. there one in particular? I mean, the, the first track on the second CD, which I think comes from their recordings, is that song... Um, Lord Gregory. Lord Gregory, yeah. Tell yeah. me about mm-hmm. that song and just before we hear it, because that was an important song for, for Bess. It's a famous it? song in many respects. Many people who might not be folk music enthusiasts might know the song as The Lass of Ochram. It was made famous by James Joyce in that wonderful story of his The Dead yeah, in the collection Dubliners. Um, and that was made then subsequently a movie, so people would have heard it then. But uh, in, to older collectors, it, it was... Uh, almost the uh, the holy grail of collecting, as it were. Lord Gregory was the great song, the great child ballad. The child ballads are so-called because there was a magnificent ten-volume collection of, of um, old ballads in the English language produced by a Harvard professor at the time, Francis James Child. So the big ballads are called child ballads for that reason. Lord Gregory, Barbara Allen, the big songs, as I say. And uh, the BBC initially, and then uh, the Americans were very excited uh, to discover that Bess had this song and had a tune to go with it. It was a well-known song, actually. 
Um, it had been collected before. It wouldn't be right to say that Bess was the, the sole source of it. But there weren't many that had a, a tune to go with it. And Bess had a particularly interesting tune, as you'll hear, to go with it. And um, uh, because it was an English ballad, it was unusual, I suppose, in a sense. It's not the kind of thing, um, it's not the kind of song maybe that you'd expect your average um sort of rural singer or old-time, old-fashioned 19th century, early 20th century Irish singer to have, particularly an Irish language singer. But she had this unusual repertoire for the reasons that I mentioned previously. She had access to sounds in the English language that other singers wouldn't have had around Balibourne. Um, and this is probably the best known of them all. And you can see why. When you listen to it, it's a beautiful song and beautifully done. And I'll be your vengeful father till our gregory comes home. Leave now those windows and likewise this hall. For a step in the sea, you should hide your downfall. Do you remember, Lord Gregory, that night a cap queen? When we bought changed pocket handkerchiefs, and that again just my will. Where yours was pure linen love, and mine was coarse clad. Yours cost one guinea love, and mine bought one groat. Leave now those windows. Seamus Ennis, of course, was another collector who came to see Bess and he came, I think, uh, well, he worked for three different organisations at different <laughs> points, the Folklore Commission, the BBC and RTE. But he, he got on particularly well with her, didn't he? I mean, it was he who christened her the, the, Muscari, the Muscari Queen of Song. They were friends. Oh, they were, yeah, very much so. I mean, if we're allowed in this day and age now, in this modern era so-called, to have heroes, then Seamus Ennis must be one of them for those of us who like this kind of thing. Um, he was a magnificent musician. Everybody knows Seamus Ennis as a piper. Um, but he was a magnificent collector of folklore as well. And he had a, a boa. He had a talent, I think, which not many people have, in that not only was he you know, fluent in the Irish language, but he could actually mimic the different dialects of Irish. So if you hear him, for example, recording... Colm O'Keearn in Connemara, then he can do the Connemara Irish accent perfectly. And if you hear him in Donegal, it's likewise with, you know, Guidoar Irish. But when he came to Munster, when he came to Balivorna particularly, uh, he has a perfect command of Balivorna Irish. And, and it's quite obvious that he and Bess got on like a house on fire. And the proof of it, uh, I suppose you could say, is that on one occasion when he was coming out to do recording with her, um, she met him at the doorstep. You know, the, if you think of the photograph on the front of the book and think of Bess there at, at the door, opening the door, greeting you more or less in the photograph, well, you can imagine her greeting Seamus on one occasion and he said then subsequently that she greeted him with a, a, a fistful of paper in her hand and, and he sort of looked at and said, well, what's this? And she had written out all these songs in her wonderful copper plate hand and he said, you shouldn't be doing this. You, know, you shouldn't be putting yourself to this trouble. And um, she said, oh, well, look, I'd far rather be talking to you than to be recording the songs. <laughs> Songs, you know, so that they had a great report, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Thalur 
There are all kinds of songs here, but just in particular, I just want to talk for a second about the women's songs because there are lots of interesting sort of women, you know, songs associated uh-huh. with women, the, the lullabies, That's right, uh, yeah. the work songs. I mean, for example, the, the song Mavournine Bond. Tell me the story about how she got that song. Yes, she had herself a very interesting anecdote about that, about uh, being upstairs, having gone to bed, having been put to bed by the women of the family one evening. And it, it was all women downstairs in the kitchen. And uh, there was great activity down below because the, the ladies were off to the market the next day with their butter. So they were churning the butter downstairs. I remember my father had that little phrase that he he repeated to me occasionally in the kitchen. means um, good luck to the churning. And, and they were churning away. And, and, and to pass the time and as a compliment to the churning, you could say they were singing these various songs. And there was one particular woman in, in, in the Kolu, other, uh, in the company, who had a great range of songs. And, and Bess was all ears. And she listened to one particular song and it took her fancy so much that she actually ran downstairs and, and said to the, the, the ladies there that she had heard the song and she wanted it. And so they laughed, obviously. They were amused by this whole thing. And so she persuaded the, this particular lady to sing the song again. And Bess had the song after two hearings and it's a nice illustration of the way in which uh, songs are passed on accidentally or otherwise and it's a nice illustration also of the way in which the women encourage each other to sing and you asked me previously about Jack Cronin there was a story um, that he forbade Bess from whistling Whist- apparently Bess was a great and ardent whistler I could believe it I'm an ardent whistler myself but apparently when she married into the plantation there was a ban on whistling um, whether that's true or not um, but maybe it was the women encouraged themselves and encouraged each other with the singing. And, and uh, that particular anecdote is a nice illustration of it. All right. Yeah. Why would you ban whistling? Though? Why would you ban whistling? I don't know. The only other example I had of it now was when I was a student in Munich. And it's a different aspect, but maybe the same kind of thing. I was a student in Munich in my postgraduate days and I was uh, going down the corridor to the Medieval Latin Institute there. And when I went in, somebody sort of took me aside and Harold Cronin, um, you shouldn't be whistling. And I said, what do you mean I shouldn't be whistling? He said, only the working classes whistle. So I made a point of, of whistling the more <laughs> and whistling louder every day as I went along. But it's obviously an absurd idea, you yeah. know, that Bess Cronin would marry into a a plantation and not be allowed to sing because it wasn't proper so-called but as I say I, I actually don't know if it's true you'd have to ask Red Leonard or somebody like that who knew better, best better than I did if that's a true story or if it's a Schgel Harish I don't know Um but it, it's interesting with the, the women's songs, the lullabies, because sometimes songs like that can be sidelined as sort of not important or, you know, too small or, you know, songs for children. So it's nice to see the way they got prominence here in, in, in her repertoire, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And and the um, it, it has to be said now that Ennis, to give him his due, was very interested in those kinds of songs and very much encouraged Bess and others to do them. I suppose they'd be regarded as sort of, you know, incidental and not really to the point. But at the same time, they are the songs that the women were interested in. There's a mm. nice one you might have read about about in the book or even heard her talking about it on the tape. Um, I mentioned previously my my, uh, cousin uh, Mamie and I suppose it's as well to point out to listeners that from time to time the collectors used to take a break from their principal recording if you like. I mean Bess would have been the primary source but she wouldn't have been the sole person singing on any particular recording occasion and good collectors, people like Jean and George or Ennis or Brian George for the BBC would have made a point of asking other people in the community to do their piece so everybody would have had a sort of party piece whether on the fiddle or 
singing or whatever. And um, there's a nice little song there, sung by Mamie Lynch. Um, Pussy cut the measles and she died, poor thing. She died, poor thing. She died, poor thing. Pussy cut the measles and she died, poor thing. The poor, the poor, the poor wee thing. And and she sang that little song simply, as I said, to give Bess a break. Mm. But immediately afterwards, and they were all very amused by this, immediately afterwards, Bess said, well, you know, that reminds me of another song. And she sang um, Pussycat's Party. Now, I had never known of Pussycat's Party before then. My father certainly didn't know about it. I don't think anybody outside of Jean and George ever realised that Pussycat's Party had been recorded. And the interesting thing is that Best hadn't remembered it, never thought to sing it, except that she was prompted by uh, Mamie's Pussycat's Party or the other one, Pussycat the Measles. They had to sit on the floor on a ring without any tables or chairs. And then in the midst of the fun, there came without knock at the door. And weren't they frightened and didn't they run? And never came back any more. Oh, my, it was a wonderful sight. Oh, my, it was a wonderful sight. Oh, my, it was a wonderful sight. Our pussycat's party that night. <laughs> it's interesting the way that one thing leads to another, as it were. And there's another nice example, and it's the opposite, if you like. You mentioned about sources and which are the important songs and which might be deemed to be less important. Um... In terms of the Bing songs that I mentioned earlier, Lord Gregory, Barbara Allen, and so on, another famous one is Lord Randall. And it's there in the book and it's there on the recordings. Um, Bess starts the song, what, had, what did you have for your breakfast, my own darling boy? What did you have for your breakfast, my friend and joy, my comfort and joy? A cup of cold poison, mother, make my bed soon because I've a pain in my heart and I'll have to lie down. And, of course, the BBC got very excited because Lord Randall is rare enough amongst the collectors. But that was the only verse that Bess sang. Mm. And this completely stumped the collector. I think the collector at the time was Mary Slocum. And she said, well, Mr Cronin, do you have any more of the song? You know, What do you know about the song? Or where did you get the song? She said, no, no, that's it. That's all I have. I said, why don't you know the whole song? And she says, well, I don't know. I didn't like it somehow, so I didn't bother to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes you think, you know, what, what, what appeals to uh, to singers and so on, and what doesn't appeal to them, and what are the songs that got left behind, so to speak, and which are the ones that came down by accident. So uh, in terms of the women's songs, uh, it may well be the case, I suppose, that Bess didn't like the idea of a mother poisoning her son, or whatever the case may be. Uh, but then, you know, Lord Gregory isn't exactly a, a, a mm. fun story either, but you no. remember that. <laughs> some of it may have to do with the tune, some of it may have to do with the content or the colour or the circumstances or whatever the case may be. Who's to say? Mm. But yes, I, th I, I can't say now, I'm not expert enough to say whether Bess Cronin had more women's songs, let's say, as you described them, than other uh, singers, mm. you know, than... Um, Sarah Maycomb or somebody like that, but certainly she has an interesting collection. And I suppose you might say that they are possibly the older songs, you know, the lullabies that you mentioned, the milking songs, the songs that women uh, hummed or sang while they were milking the cows in the in the in the uh, in the bower or whatever. And they all have an air. And and you know, Shoheen Show, the the songs about the fairies, the women who went to talk to the fairies and supposedly to get their children back that might or might not have been snatched by the fairies, mm. all these kinds of, of, of folklore stories and so on. It tends to be the, the women have those songs rather than the men, but that may just be a quirk of the collecting, I don't know. 
And um, just very briefly, I mean, the, the number of songs in English here, because there are, you know, I, I'm not sure of the numbers. I haven't done the sums, but there are as many, if not maybe more songs in, in English here than as they are in Irish. Is that because of the people who were in the audience, so to speak, I suppose, the collectors who were who were recording, do you think? Yeah, I think so. In terms of the recordings, anyway, I forget now myself how many songs there are in the entire book. I think it's 250 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's quite possible that there are more songs out there that, that Bess had that were never recorded, either written down by her, the collectors, or recorded by Ennis or the Americans or whatever the case may be. Um, I do tell the story uh, in the book of how we were launching book uh, the book originally, the original um, 2000 edition down in Coulee um, amongst uh, the locals there. Uh, and uh, a man came up to me afterwards, Sean O'Meenachan, a former teacher, now retired as a primary school teacher, who put another one of these famous brown envelopes into my hands. Um, but again, it was all very positive because when I opened it, I realised that it was an old school copybook which had, uh, in one section of it, it had notes that my father had been taking and using when he was in teacher training. Um, So it went way back, you know, to the early part of 1919, no, well, about 20 years after that, the 1939 and 1940, I would say. And then the second half of the book, because it was blank, and because Bess Cronin obviously had found it lying around in the old plantation, uh, had used it to write out six or seven songs. I think it's six or seven or eight songs in that lovely copper plate that I mentioned before. And these are all in English for the simple fact that she was giving them to her near neighbour, John Connell, a wonderful singer in his own right, uh, a CD of whose songs was published there about 10 years ago. Great, great singer. In fact, Bess Cronin said of John Connell that two blows of a hammer would make a great fiddler of him. And I think she meant that as a compliment, that he was a very fine fiddler. And John Connell used to play in sessions in the plantation with the likes of Porrick O'Keefe and Dennis Murphy and so on. So they they were in good company. So I think the two blows of a hammer was a compliment rather than uh, the opposite. But anyway, John Connell is better known as a singer than as a fiddler. Um, And these songs were done by best to be given to John. And John went away and learned them and so on. But they disappeared then. And it was only when Sean O'Meenachan came to me after the Coulee launch and said, told me the brief history of the, the collection and so on, that here were songs that had disappeared way back in 1940, disappeared completely from the record, and now they were coming back into circulation. In fact, I was able to include them in the second edition. That's one of the advantages, if you like, of being able to redo a book 20 years on. There are things that come to light in the meantime. It was early in the summertime when the flowers were freshly springing. A young man came from the north country, fell in love with Barbara Allen, fell in love with Barbara Allen. A young man came from the north country, fell in love with Barbara Allen. Agavi, there's a description in the book of her talking about learning songs um, from beggars, well, as so described, people who used to sort of roam the roam the roads or walk That's the right, roads. Yeah. And she mentions up to 60 of them who were sort of familiar figures to her. T- yeah. Tell me about yeah. that. And, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a, that was it's a fascinating... It's an interesting aspect of yeah. country life back in the old days. Yeah, and um, I think when we, we, we use the term bed and breakfast, we have a particular conception of what it means, but I think it had a literal implication for people like Bess and country families like that. There was a constant traffic. Bess talks about a constant through traffic, so to speak, of people that she describes as bakig. Now, a bakach, to, to our mind, and, and a tramp or uh, whatever term we use nowadays, doesn't quite render adequately the meaning of the term. There was no 
um, derogatory meaning in the term bakach in the old days. There were people walking the roads for all kinds of reasons, unfortunate backgrounds, whatever the case may be. But as often as not, they would have a repertoire of songs or stories. They'd be fiddlers, they'd be singers, they'd be repositories of the lore. And Bess makes the point that um, a significant number of her songs, that you're, you're quite right, they were brought by these people who would have been transitory people. They would have passed the night literally bed and breakfast. And, and the idea was that they would literally sing for their supper because they're bacchic, because they're people of no means, of no visible means. You wouldn't turn them away. The, 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 the tradition in the countryside always was that if one of these people came to your door, you, you brought them in, particularly on a harsh night or a bad night. So you you brought them in, you'd, you'd put them in front of the fire, you'd feed them, you'd put them to bed and so on. And then the payment, as it were, would be a song or a few tunes on the violin if they had a violin and that kind of thing. So that added to the repertoire hugely. And Bess herself talks about these people and Kalini Aimshura, you know, the... Uh, the working girls who came from time to time spent a few months um, working around the farm, helping out before they'd move on to other employments. And then they'd be replaced by other Kalini, I'm sure, who'd be passing through. So there was this constant traffic, um, as well as the local tradition, which had been passed on by the olders, if you like, of the, the older generation of, of local singers. There would have been a, a constant traffic. And that probably explains why Bess's repertoire is slightly different from everybody else's. And my cousins used to tell me that there was a certain degree of jealousy is not the right word, but it's the only word I can think of, that, that Bess would have certain songs that she wouldn't necessarily pass on to her sisters, for example. She had uh, four sisters and so on. Uh, and the sisters would have songs that they wouldn't necessarily pass on to their other siblings. So uh, each individual had, you know, a, a peculiar repertoire of songs. And I suspect that is the reason why, that they had different sources and different people were coming and going. Elizabeth Cronin has been a massive influence on uh, other singers. I mean, you mentioned Nelly Cronin and you mentioned Irlo Leonard, who would be from sort of the local area, but also people like Christy Moore. I mean, she has been a huge influence. Yes, on, that's I right. I suppose your hope would be with the second edition of this fantastic book that that would continue and that that would be more easily accessible to people now. Very much so. I mean, that was the purpose of doing the book, the stated purpose of doing the book initially back in 2000 and, and in the format that it's in. It's not a small book. It's a big book because people can look at it and read the words of the songs and not just listen to the recordings, but have the book there in front of them and be learning the words as they go. I mean, in terms of influence, um, I had the hopes when it came out initially because my good friend Cahal Gowen, who launched it initially in Dublin, um, actually gave a copy of the original edition to Bob Dylan. <laughs> and I had hopes that Bob might do one of the songs, you know, and then I could retire on the proceeds. That didn't happen, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, but I'm I'm still living in the hopes that Lady Gaga or, or our own wonderful Imelda May might adopt one of the songs and make it hers and do something with it. But uh, you mentioned Christy. Christy, I suppose, is the best known the person on whom the influence is most obvious, I suppose, Christy, uh, I don't need to introduce to anybody on this programme. But uh, Christy's uh, On Board the Kangaroo is, of course, a, a wonderful rendition of, of uh, Bess's song, which is famous, and, and I hope you'll play before we finish. Um, and it's interesting to compare and contrast the two styles, and it's interesting because it shows Christy making the song his own. You mm. know, I, I don't intend people to, to, to listen to these songs and memorise them and to repeat the songs exactly as they hear them. The idea is to make these available to people 
who want to make them part of their own living tradition and to do with them whatever they like. You know, it, it's none of my business what people do with songs. I'm just trying to make this repertoire available again and and to to open the eyes, I think, to people of the to the richness of the tradition that's still there if you go looking for it. And luckily, you know, one we have wonderful institutions like yourself and RT now, but apart from that and the Plaw Moss, we have the magnificent uh, traditional music archive and their publications and the work of Nicholas Carolyn and the local groups that are producing, as I said, the recording, the CD of John Connell that came out recently. And in fact, there was a very interesting CD produced not so long ago of the songs of Dan Cronin. Now, Dan was uh, Bess's oldest son, uh, and it's his family are in the plantation to the present day. But it's very interesting to hear Dan Cronin singing uh, some of these songs, including The Kangaroo, uh, which he obviously learned from Bess Cronin, but which are different. You know, his renderings are actually different. If you listen to the tune, if you listen to the words and so on, Dan Cronin again made his own of these songs, and that's that's the basis of the repertoire. That's the basis of the tradition, if you like, that people don't mimic the songs. They actually imbibe them and then make their own of them, and, and that's what keeps the tradition going. Okay, well, Ravi, the book is officially called The Songs of Elizabeth Cronin, Irish Traditional Singer, but you have a much, uh, you have a colloquial title for it as well. I don't know if people approve. Yeah, your your predecessor, Peter, was very amused when I came up with the idea of calling this book uh, Granny's Greatest Hits. Um, I suppose on foot of of, of um, Christie's rendering of the kangaroo and so on, because that's how people would know these songs, I suppose, initially. But yes, I, I, I refer to them colloquially and, and uh, lovingly as her greatest hits, because a lot of them are well known and they're out there in the tradition. And I'm, I'm sort of trying to encourage people to go back and, and relearn them, those that have forgotten them or those that didn't know them in the first place, you know, to go back and, and look at these songs. They're all well worth uh, looking at again and, and recording and, and broadcasting. Okay, well, Ravi Gurmila Mila Mahagat, the songs of Elizabeth Cronin, Irish traditional singer, uh, by Davio Cronin, which includes two CDs and additional material, which wasn't in the first edition, is published by Four Courts Press. Agaza Kohard Hazlat, Ravi. But now I am a mariner that blows the angry seas. I always liked seafaring life and bid my love and joy. I shipped a student, cooked my boys, and bought my kangaroo. Oh, I never thought she would prove false or either proven true. As we sailed away through Milford Bay and bore the kangaroo. Oh, think of me, oh, think of me, she mournfully did say. When you are in a foreign land and I am far away. Now take this liquid trip me a bit to make you bear in mind how loving, trusting, faithful heart you've left in tears behind. Oh, I never thought you would prove... And thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast. For rights reasons, the music here is shorter than in the original broadcast, so if you'd like to hear the full tracks, you can go to rte.ie forward slash the Rolling Wave. And this programme was first broadcast on the 30th of January 2022. Good evening, Kiedorella, Guramina Magi, Agasla.